for us to receive it well and be inspired by it and, and to prepare our hearts for the teaching of his word, I would ask that you all bow your heads. Let's go to the Lord in a spirit of prayer and ask him to once again send us by his spirit. Father in heaven, we love you and we are grateful for all that you do. We're grateful for the way that you send your people and the ways that we have been encouraged and reminded of that sending power through your spirit this morning. And we ask, God, that we would make ourselves available to you, uh, that we would come before you in joyful praise and adoration and say, here we are, Lord, send us as a church, send us as individuals, and allow us to embrace the mission that you've put before us and the task that you're calling us to. God, we know that those things are fueled and inspired by the teaching of your word and the filling of your spirit. And so, God, we ask for your word to be um, ministered to our hearts today in a way that changes us and molds us and shapes us. God, we pray for your spirit to fill this place and that we would be expectant. God, that we would be obedient, that we would be courageous in the things that you call us to. We thank you, Father, for such a privilege and such a responsibility. We entrust it all to you now, to you and to your glory. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen and amen. All right, church, uh, we are going to continue our discussion in Acts chapter 1 and what it means to, to live out this courageous mission. I, I hope you've connected the dots in this series to the previous series, because what we've really wanted to try to emphasize as we walk through identity and understanding that we've all been made in the image of God is that because we've been made in God's image and he has uniquely created you and designed us to reflect his image to this world and to fill our corners of the world up with his glory and his, his majesty, right? That that means he's given you a task. He's given you a mission. He's given you a certain responsibility, and he, is, he has called you to run after it and pursue it. And so as we finished up Identity, we now moved into Missions Month that have said, okay, now how do I respond to this mission that he has given me courageously? How do I run after it? How, how do I pursue it? And that's what we've been wanting to talk about for the last several weeks. And we started this conversation by basing it all off of Acts chapter 1. And what you see in Acts chapter 1 is that conversation beginning with Jesus telling his disciples first to wait on the Holy Spirit. And so when we started this conversation back several weeks ago, that was our first response was before we run after our own mission, before we run after our own ideas, our own uh, preconceived notions, we're going to stop and we're going to wait on the Lord. And we're going to ask that he would fill us with his spirit, that we need to be clothed with power on high, just as he did for his disciples there in Acts chapter 1. And as we talked about that, what we used was Psalm 27 to kind of orient our understanding of what that looks like, that ultimately waiting on the Lord is really a desire for his presence, right? One thing I ask, Lord, this is what I seek, that I may gaze upon the beauty of the Lord, right? That's what the psalmist says, and that's what we want to be the desire of our hearts more than anything else to long for him, right? And if that's our desire, then it naturally sets us on course that he has for us. And then last week, Jason did a phenomenal job. Put your hands together for Jason Simon again, y'all. Did a phenomenal job talking about how that can often lead us to Jerusalem, right? Your immediate context, which can be very difficult because Jerusalem is often the place of our greatest vulnerability, sometimes our greatest hurts. And, and so God uses us and says, hey, uh, though this is not your home, right? Uh, your home is ultimately with me and you long for that day. Where I have you today, treat it as a place that you can bloom where you've been planted, right? And invest in it, pour into it. And there are so many different ways that you can do that. And that's what we looked at last week is how do you bear witness to this gospel in Jerusalem in your immediate context? 
Well, today we're going to look at what it looks like to do this beyond Jerusalem. So we're going to actually using the same set of verses. Um, we're going to be revisiting a lot of the same verses, but we're looking at them from a slightly different perspective today because, to consider not just what do they mean for if they were going to result in us engaging in our immediate context, but how do they inform our ability to engage beyond Jerusalem, okay? And so we're going to be in Acts chapter 1. I'm going to pick back up in verse 4 just to read that first, and then we're going to dig in through verses 6, 7, and 8. But let's pick it up in verse 4. It says, on one occasion, while he was eating with them, he gave them this command, do not leave Jerusalem, but wait for the gift my father promised, which you have heard me speak about. For, for John baptized with water, but in a few days you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit. And then they gathered around him and asked him, Lord, are you at this time going to restore the kingdom to Israel? And he said to them, it is not for you to know the times or the dates the father has set by his own authority, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you. And you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. All right, so I wanted to reread verses 4 and 5, even though we've already talked about what it means to wait on the Spirit. I, I wanted to at least read it so that we can continue to emphasize that that's the anchor, right? That, that if we're going to really pursue and fulfill God's mission for our lives, it is going to be a mission that is led and fueled by the Spirit. And so we have that as a foundation, but where I really want to dig in is this opening question in verse 6, right? The disciples are gathered around Jesus, and they say, all right, Lord, at this time are you now going to restore the kingdom of Israel? And it's a really interesting question. As, as we talked a little bit last week, it does demonstrate just how confused they are about what's happening next, and, and that's for sure uh, a component to what we're going to talk about here in just a minute. But I can also empathize with them. Right? I, I can empathize with this question, and I think by, by us really digging into this question, it helps us understand some pretty core tendencies that we have within the human heart. Tendencies that I think ultimately Acts 1-8 really addresses and confronts in pretty radical and profound ways. And so in order for us to really appreciate what Jesus is about to say in Acts 1-8, we need to, to really reflect upon this question that they offer in verse 6. See, the reason I empathize with them is because they had always wanted the kingdom to be restored to Israel. This was what their hopes were. This was what they were taught from the very beginning, right? That there would be a Messiah, there would be some form of a Savior who would come and restore Israel to its rightful place. And they longed for that kingdom. That's what they looked for in a Savior. And, and so they're, they're longing for it. And all of a sudden, here comes this Jesus. This miracle worker, this, this man from Nazareth who could heal the blind and the lame and the crippled, who could feed the thousands and calm the wind and the waves, and they think, surely this is him, right? And there are moments in the gospel where, where you can tell it's what the people wanted. John's gospel says that there is a time, I believe, after he feeds the 5,000, where Jesus intentionally withdraws because he knew they were going to force him to be king. That's what they wanted. And they see it and its potential in this incredible man from Nazareth. And then all of a sudden he's executed. Right? He's executed by Rome, right? this oppressive ruler. And so their hopes and their dreams for this kingdom are immediately devastated with that execution. Right? Distraught once again. We thought this was him. And then all of a sudden they encounter the resurrection. 
a power unlike any they had ever seen, right? This, this resurrection power. And they think, well, if Rome can't even defeat you in execution, then surely at this time you are now going to restore this kingdom to Israel. They saw the power of God there within their grasp to fulfill their heart's desires, these desires they had had their whole life. And we can all empathize with that because it's often how we also approach God. Right, that, that a lot of times, you and I, we have these certain expectations, these certain dreams, these preconceived notions of what we want for our life, things that we expect to happen and that we long to see come to fruition. And so when we finally encounter this power of God, we often want that power to be used to fulfill those desires. Right? We, we try to fulfill these things in all these different ways. Right? We, we try to achieve our expectations by our own abilities, through our own careers, whatever it is, and then we end up striking out and we say, well, maybe I'll try this religious thing. Maybe I'll try this God thing. Maybe now his power will bring the happiness and the fulfillment that I've always longed for. Right? And so we oftentimes encounter the power of God, this resurrection power, to fulfill our desires rather than reshape them. What the gospel actually does is confront that human tendency and says that this Jesus is not here just to meet your expectations and to fulfill your every want. It actually calls you to lay them down. And now it's going to reshape them. It's going to change your desires more than anything else. And that's what you see taking place here in Acts chapter 1. So I need you to, to wrestle with that a little bit this morning and ask yourself, how are you coming to God? What, what are you looking for from him? Are you looking for his power, this gospel, this, this hope, to just fulfill your preconceived expectations and notions? Or are you willing to lay them down and let your desires be reshaped? That's step one. And it's a critical step to embracing what Jesus is about to commission his disciples to do. Lay your desires aside and let them be reshaped. Now here's the other thing that we see. Uh, John Stott writes a commentary on the book of Acts and he says there are three key words in this question that revealed the disciples' confusion, their doctrinal confusion about what was really about to transpire. And the words are restore in Israel and at this time. Okay, and so here's a quick explanation of that. The idea of them asking for restoration once again shows that they were looking for this kind of lifelong dream. When they say restore, they want things to go back to the way that they were, right? So in their mind, they're picturing David on his throne, Israel at the height of its power, where they had uh, success and freedom from enemies on every side. That's what they wanted. They wanted things restored. So the question of restoration is a desire for political and territorial restoration, right? And not only is it just political and territorial, it's specific to the Jews. Are you going to restore Israel? They are interpreting the resurrection not to be for humanity, but to be for Israel, right? They are seeing this new power, this new resurrected message, not to be for all people, but just for the Jews. It is a very nationalistic mindset, right? So they're wanting restoration for Israel, and they want it now. Are you going to do it now at this time? We've been waiting for so long, and they're looking for an immediate response from this gospel. Now, I want to I dive into that a little bit. Okay, I want to dive into those tendencies because 
It'd be easy for us to look at it and say, well, the disciples just got confused. But what it's really doing is it's diving into something deeper within each of our own hearts. And, and to kind of walk us through this, uh, one of my favorite commentators on the book of Acts is Willie James Jennings. I've quoted him several times when we've ever studied Acts. And he's got three or four quotes that I'm going to reference for us this morning that I think help us dive into this human tendency. And he uses this word nationalism to kind of capture the spirit of the question here in verse 6. Now, I want to be very clear about this. Uh, that word today has somewhat become almost politicized to a certain extent, and, and I am not reading this, nor do I think he is writing this from a political framework as much as he is really trying to drive uh, us into a place to better understand a human tendency that every human heart has. Okay, so let me read you this first quote, and I think we have it on the screens, hopefully, so it helps you digest it. If you're like me, I need to see it to, to read it. He says, the nationalism suggested here is not a historical nationalism bound to the anatomy of Israel, but the deeply human desire of every people to control their destiny and shape the world into their hope for eternal image. Nationalist fantasy has seeped into faith both Jewish and Christian and finds its ways into other faiths as well. Such fantasy dreams are completely understandable and quite compelling because they help us cope with the vulnerability that is creaturely life. And they reflect the power of accumulated wounds. The greater number of wounds inflicted on a people, the greater the fantasy dreams of being self-determined and wielding power over others and power to control our own destiny. It drives the creation of walled communities, border patrols and checkpoints and turns violence and segregation into the proper exercise of the state's right to life. Okay, let me, let me unpack that for us for a little bit. Here's what he's saying. There's a human desire within each of us because we know creaturely life is vulnerable life, right? And so if you go back to the very beginning of like human civilization, before there were nations and kingdoms and everything, it doesn't take long for, for the human species, for the individual to realize just how vulnerable they are. Be that uh, from a threat of natural disaster or another creature. It could be a human, could be, could be another animal, whatever. But, but you quickly realize how vulnerable your life is. And so communities begin to coalesce, come together for protection purposes. Right? You, you start to formulate tribes. And these tribes depend upon one another to provide food, to provide care, to provide protection from any sort of threat and any sort of vulnerability that they may feel. And, and that is a human impulse, to desire that protection and to align yourself with people that are going to help secure that protection for you. That is an innate human tendency. And through the course of human history, those tribes, those, those alliances, those allegiances, however they develop, begin to develop in more sophisticated and robust ways until eventually you have nations, right? You have all different forms of expressions of communities. And we still experience that today, not, not even just as a nation, but all the different ways that we kind of congregate and gather together with similar ideas that, that kind of speak to that human impulse to say, well, if we can work together, then we can protect one another from any sort of violation of our rights, any, any sort of hindrances to our dreams, to our desires, to our wants, and we gather together in these communities, right? It's a human impulse. Now, what's interesting about this in this quote is he builds upon the idea that what can further drive that is that as communities gather together, tribes, nations, or whatever expression, the more wounds they have, the stronger the desire for this nationalist protection, right? And so histories begin to be shaped by these wounds. 
And the more vulnerable you are, the more your wounds are exposed, the more you're going to desire protection from rule or protection to be ruled by others. And so perhaps one of the greatest examples right now that we can all point to would be the conflict that we see between Israel and Palestine, right? We see this conflict, and what we see are two groups, two tribes, two nations, two people that have been significantly impacted by generations upon generations of wounds, heartache, hardship, difficulty, to the point now that the wall, metaphorically and almost literally, that is built between them is so high, you begin to wonder if it's ever going to be uh, surmountable, right? That, that now, because of those wounds, because of those conflicts, because of that damage, the state has exercised what it seems to be a right towards violence and aggression in order to secure that sort of protection from the other, right? And so it drives people away from one another right, rather than to one another. And what we're seeing here, that can be an extreme example, but what we all recognize as part of the human heart is that it is prone within each of us to see the world through the lens of us versus them, right? We all carry it, us versus them. Here's who I align with, here's who's going to protect me and help fight for me, and then there's them those that are gonna jeopardize what I hold dear. I need to be protected from them. This is not a tendency that was just relevant to the disciples at this point in time. It is one that is relevant to every human heart and it is alive and well today. Is it in your heart? Think very critically and thoughtfully and intentionally this morning. Do you see the world as an us versus them mentality. Who is your us and who is them that you're fearful of, that you're worried about, that you're frustrated by? We all have this human tendency to see the world in this regard. And this question in verse 6 reveals that tendency. Now here's why it becomes so dangerous. Jennings continues to explain why it can be so problematic. He says, nationalist vision is weakness and fear masquerading as strength and courage because it beckons the world's people to postures of protectionism. The horror of the God-bound-to-us nationalism is not that it wants our respect, it wants our desire because secretly it wants our worship. Right? And so when we give in to that sort of tendency, that sort of protectionist mindset, what it does is ultimately wall us off from others and becomes an object of desire, becomes really an object of worship, if we're not careful. And that's the human tendency that Jesus in the gospel is about to directly confront with his commission in Acts 1.8. All right, so look, look at how Jesus responds, Okay. Um, what he says is, first of all, is he speaks to the timing of it. He says, it's really not up to you to know the dates and the times that the Father has set by his own authority. And that's a good quick reminder. That could be a sermon in and of itself because it's just a great reminder scripturally and biblically that says your time is not always God's time. Can I get an amen? I mean, how many times have we learned that lesson? I've put so many plans before the Lord saying this is a great way to do it, God right here at this time in this way. And he's like, nope, got a different idea. 
And, and that's ultimately what we see here. And so one of the things that we need to embrace uh, through Jesus' answer here is kind of reminds us of what he says to his disciples in the Gospels when he says, don't worry about tomorrow, right? Don't worry about what you're going to eat, what you're going to drink, what you're going to wear, right? Seek first my kingdom today. And so one of the things that you and I have to do to embrace God's mission for our lives is to recognize the significance of the present moment, right? To, to really embrace where he has us today and embrace it more than our curiosity for tomorrow, right? To surrender our own idea of timing and to just submit to his, right? And so that's the first thing is to kind of loosen our grip on what our plans look like compared to his, especially when it comes to timing. And then he gets to verse eight, and there are several aspects to verse eight that I wanna make sure that we break down here and understand. He says it is uh, in verse eight, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you. All right, so again, to emphasize it over and over again, to fulfill God's mission and his plan in our life is to be led by the Spirit. What is so unique about this exchange between the disciples and Jesus at this point in time is that they are encountering the resurrected Christ, but before they have been clothed with power by the Spirit. So their interpretation of the resurrection is really in accordance to the flesh rather than accordance to the Spirit. You wanna see the Spirit's interpretation of the resurrection, keep reading. Read Acts chapter two, right? But, but right now you kind of have this, this fleshly response and it is driven more by what they desire and what they want. And so this is a good reminder for us again, when we understand what it means to live and pursue God's mission, right? We pursue not an earthly kingdom, but a heavenly one. We don't desire the power of man, we desire the power of the spirit, right? That's what we long for. That's what he was instructing them to be their anchor and to wait on, right? And then what does he say? Then you will be my witnesses. Now, before we get to the geography, let's revisit, as we did last week, what does it mean to be a witness? It's where we get our word martyr. It means testify. And, and so a couple of things that I want to accentuate for us this morning when it comes to witness. I want to first talk about what we are witnessing to, and then I want to really quickly capture how we witness to it, and then the where, okay? And so when we talk about what are they witnessing to, uh, let's not overcomplicate things. Let's revisit and better understand and commit ourselves to a simple understanding of the gospel. There are numerous summarizations of it in scripture. We've talked about it from 1 Corinthians 15 and a number of other places. The gospel, what they are bearing witness to is the resurrection of Jesus Christ, right? They are bearing witness to the idea of resurrected life, Right, that there was a savior who was born of a virgin, came and dwelled in the flesh, right, taught all these incredible things about God's mercy, his compassion and justice, and demonstrated that he had authority to forgive sins and to demonstrate that authority and that sort of forgiveness. He performed numerous miracles that were accredited to him by God. But ultimately, his, his life on the cross shows you and me that our brokenness, our sinfulness, the wages of sin that is death, his death takes the death that we owe in our place and gives us the forgiveness and mercy that we need. And when he is resurrected and brought to new life, it is this unbelievable revolutionary declaration that death doesn't win. They are being sent out to bear witness to the resurrection of Jesus Christ. If you have not 
ever fully understood that and grasped that, I implore you and beg of you to embrace it this morning. That is what we are tasked to bear witness to. Right? That's the what? The resurrection of Jesus Christ. Here's how you bear witness to it, church. Number one, you got to trust it. You got to trust it. And if you've never truly put your trust in the hope of the resurrection, I would encourage you, don't wait any longer. Do so today. Come find me after the service. Talk to me about it. Let's pray about it, man. We'll, we'll walk that journey together, but you got to trust it. And if you have trusted it in the past and you've made that decision, then continue to trust it. Understand that's the essence of your purpose in life. Understand that's the essence of how you reflect the glory of God as an image bearer. Like, like that's it. Trust it in all seasons, in all circumstances. Let it be your rock. Let it be your foundation. Right? And that's how you begin to bear witness to it. Then the second step to bear witness to it, talk about it. Use your words. Share the gospel. Speak of this hope that Jesus offers in conversation in settings that the Lord has led you, be it at work, be it at home, be it with family, wherever it is, use your words to speak of this hope. How else do you bear witness to it? You do so indeed through service. By the way that you love others, the way that you serve others, the Savior that extends this salvation to you is the one that says the Son of Man doesn't come to be served, but to serve and give his life as a ransom for many. And if that's the example that he set, then we should follow suit. We bear witness by the way that we serve others in good times and in bad, in joy and in suffering. We live that way and people will begin to see the hope of this gospel. Now that being said, that's the what, that's the how, now let's talk about the where. Jesus continues this verse by saying, you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. We talked about Jerusalem last week and, and obviously that's a, a key component to it. But this week, I want to talk about what does it mean to go beyond Jerusalem. And part of what I want us to see when we read this section is that, yes, it often serves as kind of a table of contents for the book of Acts, that if you keep reading this book, this is exactly how it unfolds. We see the gospel spread from Jerusalem to all Judea and Samaria, and then ultimately to the ends of the earth. But part of what happens is that when we step beyond Jerusalem, some really amazing things take place. Uh, Jerusalem is hard. Jason was very right when he said, I mean, it's often the place of your deepest hurt. Um, it, it comes with some of the greatest challenges, oftentimes some of the greatest opposition. What, what is beneficial about Jerusalem and sometimes easy and comfortable is that it's known, it's familiar, right? It, it's comfortable to a certain extent. When you start to step beyond Jerusalem, you're, you're stepping into new arenas and new environments that are unfamiliar, that are different, that can often be uncomfortable. You're, you're stepping into something um, that, that really creates the opportunity for you to experience the diversity of your creator. Right? Here's what I love about it. When you start going beyond Jerusalem, what that actually means is that you're stepping into something that's different than you. You're, you're talking about people or cultures or places that have different uh, language, different skin color, different uh, music that they like, different food that they like, different worldviews that they have, different experiences, different histories. You are stepping into something completely different. You're stepping into diversity. And if we actually believe that there is one creator and he creates all people in the image of God, then what you're stepping into is the artistry of God. <laughs> That's what you're doing, right? 
that you're stepping into another expression that God has uniquely created in his people. And you get a chance to see it and experience it and value that sort of artistry, to value the, the way in which he's created people to be different in a beautiful and incredible way. He's created this mosaic with the way in which he's designed us. And so when we get to go beyond Jerusalem, we get to step into that artistry in a very profound and incredible way. He's calling us to go to people that are not just different than us, but oftentimes he's calling us to go to them, the other, the one that we've been opposed. You know, Jews didn't associate with the Samaritans at all. There was discord, there were walls, there were divisions. Jesus says this gospel, it breaks through those walls, it doesn't build them. Right? He sends them to the Samaritans. He sends them to people that weren't like him. He sends them to the Gentiles. Those that traditionally they had seen to be heathens, those that they had seen to be pagans, those that they saw to be far off from God. He goes, no, yeah, I'm actually sending you to them. And that's where it becomes pretty revolutionary. That's where it becomes pretty remarkable is that by, by doing so, Jesus creates this opportunity that confronts those impulses within the human heart. He says, your tendency is gonna be to create a world where you begin to see us versus them. I'm actually gonna send you to them because the gospel is not just for you, it's for them. Again, that sort of mindset drastically changes how we engage the world around us. Yeah, uh, Willie James Jennings again begins to explain just how radical this is. This other quote that I want to read to you this day. He says, uh, nationalist vision, oh wait, no, no, that's the wrong one. Yeah, they will be turned out, they being the disciples, they will be turned out to the world, not as representatives of empires, but those who will announce a revolution, the revolution of the intimate, God calling to the world. They will enter new places to become new people by joining themselves to those in Judea, Samaria, and the ends of the earth. God is drawing Israel toward a people who receives people, welcoming the stranger, and thereby expanding their identity without loss. I love the way that he describes that, right? That we are sent out as representatives, not of empires or of our own tribes or own groups, but as representatives of this gospel. And what changes is that rather than building these walls and creating these boundaries and creating these, these uh, ideas of division, we actually break through them and we are joining with them, joining with those in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and the ends of the earth. What happens with this gospel is it moves from no longer allowing us to see the world as us versus them, but us and them. And we're with them, still preserving our uniqueness in the artistry of God, but coming together in a new spirit that reveals his heart for all of his creation. And so here's the question that I want you to be left with and wrestling with today. It's my final quote from James Jennings. Here's the question. The question we are compelled to ask and answer by our lives is, how might we show the love of God for all peoples? A love that cannot be contained by any nation, a love that slices through borders and boundaries and reaches into every people group, every clan, every tribe, and every family. 
How do we represent that love? I would tell you geography matters. I would love for you to leave here today thinking about the spaces and places that you inhabit and ask yourself, do those places and spaces that I spend time in, do they allow me to step into the artistry of God? Are they homogenous or diverse? Am I just constantly congregating with those that I consider to be part of us? Or am I willing to brace the discomfort, brace the unfamiliarity, whatever it is, and go to them, be it across the world or across the street? Am I willing to do whatever it takes to take this love to all peoples, no matter the cost? And to do that means I lay my impulses, my desires aside, and I let them be reshaped by this gospel. Now, I want to tell you that I think that the, the way we do that, the way we communicate that love across cultures is actually pretty simple. Um, I want to give you an idea of how I think it can work and the simplicity of it. As, as a former missions pastor, I've got numerous memories and moments that have truly shaped my faith in me as a person. And I could close my eyes and almost transport myself back to a number of them. Like I can, I can see myself sitting on that floor of the hut talking to Husseini and hearing about his dream in Tarodi and how it changed his life. Or at that dinner table sitting across from Yakuba and Niamey and in hear, hearing his dreams that led him to faith. I can think back towards my time in China working with university students and never forgetting the story of this one college student that told us how when she was born, her dad named her meaningless because she didn't want a daughter. And so she had changed her name to meaningful. And I can remember their tears as we left um, our first visit there. One of my favorite memories, one that I'll share with you today, comes from my first time to ever travel uh, to another country. I was in Lusaka, Zambia, and we were going to uh, host a sports camp for uh, an orphanage that was there. And I'll never forget the bus ride from our accommodations to the orphanage. Uh, you know, Zambia in this particular neighborhood was, was pretty poor and impoverished. The roads were gravel and bumpy and uh, a lot of poverty around us. And as that bus would go through this neighborhood, the kids would just pour out into the streets and come running after the bus. And what I will never forget is their smile. <laughs> Literally worlds apart. Completely different skin color, language, background, worldview. And what brought us together was something as simple as a joyful smile. <laughs> because love cuts through barriers. It doesn't build them. And that love is, is that simple. As simple as a smile or the space that says, I see you, you're no longer them that I'm concerned about, you're them that I care about. So when we're there, it's actually quite simple. It's getting to that point. It's, it's the willingness to lay down that desire embrace the challenge, embrace the difficulty, embrace this call and this mission and go wherever he has led you that you can be an ambassador for such love. And the only way that I can hopefully encourage you to consider that this morning, what I'll leave you with is this. It's exactly what he's done for you. 
There is no greater divide, no greater chasm, no greater barrier that anyone has ever crossed than when the Son took on flesh and came and dwelt among us. And he did so because of an unbelievable, amazing love that transcends those barriers, that transcends those boundaries. He looked upon us in our broken state, and in his great love for us, he said, I'm going to them. So may we go and do likewise. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we thank you for who you are. And we thank you for the way that you send us. I pray that each and every one of us that are here today would be filled by your spirit. God, that you would send us to across the street, to our own family members, to around the world, and that you would do so with an unbelievable power of your spirit in a way that allows us to overflow with your love and to bring that love, to bear witness to this gospel, this resurrected life, God, to, to bear witness with that sort of courageousness that we see demonstrated in the scriptures. To do so by trusting this gospel, um, sharing it in word and in deed, serving it with our whole hearts. And God, that you would use us in such a way that allows us to be your ambassadors. God, speak to each and every one of us this morning that we would have a clear understanding of who it is that you are sending us to and how. And may we go with that love inviting others in to this incredible hope that we have in Jesus. God, we thank you for that hope. We thank you for that love. It's in Jesus' name that we pray these things. Amen and amen.